in prayer. Gracious God, we are a dependent people. We need you now to help us. This is your word that's going to be preached. And so, Father, help us listen. Help us to engage with the word in our minds and in our hearts, Father. Give us hearts that will receive this truth by faith and hands and feet that will apply it after we leave here because we understand that you are worthy of us living in light of your word and obeying you, Father, because of all that you've done for us and all that you've promised to do for us in the future in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help me to preach accurately and passionately and clearly and worshipfully, Father, please. And may this congregation listen attentively and worshipfully. May we all see this as part of the worship service. Just because the singing has ended doesn't mean worship has ended. So, Father, give us the grace to worship you now in this way. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I believe that I was... 14 years old, when my church youth group went to a Christian camp in the mountains of Colorado. We went to a camp named Camp Red Cloud. And while I was there, I I, I had a lot of firsts in terms of uh, things, outdoorsy kinds of things that I don't know how to do that I ended up doing for the first time. Mountain biking and ropes courses and and we, uh, we did a 12-mile hike up the Continental Divide, things that uh, I hadn't done for the first time and, and I found I wasn't good at. And we also went whitewater rafting in the Colorado River. And it was, it was wonderfully uh, energizing. But there are two things that I, I don't think I'll ever forget about whitewater rafting in the Colorado River. And the first one is that by the time we got to the end of our excursion down the river, the water was so cold that my legs were downright numb. Could not feel my legs. Never forget that. But uh, the second thing I'll never forget was at one point we were in the raft and we'd come to a, a violent part of the river. And my Sunday school teacher, Owen, was in the back of the raft. And we hit a bumpy part, and he, he fell out the back. And because our raft got stuck behind a rock and was kind of situated in a place where it wasn't moving, um, he, he got pulled under the raft and couldn't get out from underneath it. Every time he, he would go up to try to get to the surface, there was the raft. We were looking for him and looking for him, but he just wasn't there. And then, with what he perceived was his last chance to find his way out, he broke through and filled his lungs with air, received oxygen. So when we got to the bank of the river, Owen started to tell the story to us about what he'd experienced. And and one of the things that I remember is that he was describing to us uh, the terrifying experience of feeling like you're going to drown. And with it comes an overwhelming distress, this this frantic desperation 
that is brought upon the person because of the prospect of death. And praise the Lord, uh, Owen made it through that. Uh, but I just remember being scared after that. I was sobered by that reality of that experience that he had. And, you know, we, we've, we've probably always, or we've probably all been in a situation where we've been in the swimming pool, we've been under the water, and we, we have felt a shortness of breath, right? We've probably all experienced that at one time or another. Well, what do you do in those situations? You, you just find the bottom of the pool, and you kind of shoot yourself up above the water, and you, you get the air that you need, right? But fewer of us have probably experienced the feeling of thinking we might drown. But perhaps more of us have had the feeling of drowning spiritually. Perhaps more of us have felt like we were drowning spiritually. Maybe you've had the experience of your sin bringing you to a point of overwhelming distress, frantic desperation, right? The experience of guilt and shame can, can be severely burdensome, can't it? Leading you to believe lies of, of hopelessness in the moment. And church, this morning, I, I want to preach a sermon to remind you, to remind myself, that if we have trusted in Christ, if we are in Christ, then we are never without hope. Never without hope because of the steadfast love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. So turn with me to Psalm 130 this morning. Psalm 130, one of what's called the penitential psalms. And listen along as I read. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We see in our text this morning five realities, five realities that surround our hope when we are feeling like we're drowning spiritually because of our sin. Five realities that surround our hope when we feel like we're drowning spiritually because of our sin. Number one, the direction of our hope. Number two, the content of our hope. Number three, the response of our hope. Number four, the anticipation of our hope. And number five, the pleading of our hope. I'll say that again. The direction of our hope, the content of our hope, the response of our hope, the anticipation of our hope, and the, and the pleading of our hope. So look with me at the text 
we'll talk about the direction of our hope. In verse 1, we find the psalmist, he's engulfed in the deep waters of sin and guilt. It's from this place that he's crying out to God. Commentator Willem Van Gemeren explains that the metaphor of, of the depths connotes a feeling of alienation from God. Alienation from God. When we've committed sin and the, the burden of guilt lies heavy upon us, we experience distance from God. We experience a, an alienation in a sense. Not that we're cut off from God's love. If we're in Christ, we're not cut off from his love. But, but when we have sinned and we are experiencing guilt, there is a, there's, there's a distance. There, there is a, a separation from our fellowship with God. In those moments, we're not communing with him. We're not enjoying him. We feel that distance. In the same way that Owen, my Sunday school teacher, was alienated from that which he needed most, air or oxygen, so we're alienated from what we need most, God, when we don't take our guilt to him. What oxygen is to our bodies God is to our souls. And to try and live without him becomes very, very desperate, very, very fast. Now, before I go on, let me ask you a question. Do you see God's grace in allowing you to feel desperation over your sin? Do you see it as God's grace to you that he allows you to be brought to a place where you feel desperation because of your sin. That's grace. He brings you to that place where you are desperate because of your sin. Let me read you this, this quote. James Vaughn writes this. Everyone prays. Everyone prays, but very few cry. But of those who do cry to God, the majority would say, I owe it to the depths. I learned it there. I often prayed before, but never till I was carried down very deep did I cry. The psalmist is crying to God. And what James Vaughn is saying here is that the depths often teach us to cry to God. I praise that very few cry, but bring, being brought to a place of desperation leads us often to cry to God, to depend on Him, to seek Him, to put our hope in Him and not other things and not ourselves. Do you praise God for the depths? Man, or do you try to get out of the depths as soon as possible without having to think about it? Do you praise Him that you felt desperation because desperation often leads us to Him? to go to 2 Corinthians 12 with me. Look at Paul being put in a desperate situation. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. For Paul, he had received certain visions from God, certain revelations from God, and so um, this is what he says in view of those visions. Verse 7. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. See? A thorn in the flesh is given. We don't, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. It's probably some kind, some kind of uh, physical malady. It might be a person in his life. We don't know for sure. Okay? But... It's brought him to a place where, look, in verse 8, he pleads to God. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So his desperation, his desperation right, the depths have brought him to a place where he is pleading with God. Three times. He's not just, not just once, but three times pleading with God for it to leave him. But verse 9, he said to me, Christ said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul is learning something more about what it means to depend on the Lord. He's, he's brought to the Lord in prayer, but the answer to the prayer was, uh, depend on my grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul gets to learn more about what it means to depend on the Lord because he's been brought to a place of desperation. So whether it's some physical trial you're enduring, or, or in, in the case of the psalmist in Psalm 130, being brought to a, a place of desperation because of your sin, do you praise God for the depths? Because we're always weak. We're always needy, aren't we? But praise the Lord for the times where he pulls back the curtain and says, remember, you are needy of me. You need to be desperate. Run to me. We don't pray as much, usually, when things are going easy. When we don't see our sin, or life is smooth. It's in the depths that we cry to him, seek to hope in him, and run to him, and learn more about what it means to depend on him. So praise God for the depths, church. Let's move on. If you go back to the text here, Psalm 130, um, certainly it is true that the depths lead us to the Lord much. But there are times, though, when we, we experience a, a point of desperation, when we're feeling guilt and shame over our sin, that we don't always go to God like we should. A lot of times we run to other things. We, we seek refuge in other things. We seek hope in other things, whether they be people or experiences, you know, acceptance, respect, freedom, money, job, family, success. And we also, sometimes when we're feeling desperation over our sin, instead of turning to God, we turn to ourselves. We turn within instead of without to him. We, we do things like this. We, we have a tendency when we feel this way, we, to feel, when we feel like we're drowning spiritually, we have a tendency to trust ourselves to redefine sin. You ever do that? You ever redefine sin? Like you are, you're the one who decides what is bad or good or what is really bad and, and what is not so bad, what is really, really bad. You ever redefine sin like that so you can feel better about your guilt and your shame? We do that. 
we say things like, at least I didn't do fill in the blank, right? Or what I did was no different from fill in the blank. That's us attempting to redefine sin so we can deal with our guilt and shame ourselves instead of taking it to God. Think of what we read in the book of Judges. Here's, here's what we see repeated in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, in the time of the judges, the people of Israel created a life and a religion in their own image. A life and religion in their own image. Instead of depending on the real, revealed word of God to shape and form their lives, they were depending on their own desires, their own hearts, their own agendas to create a life that was comfortable for them, right? The book of Judges is an indictment on this kind of living where, where we uh, decide what is right for ourselves and we redefine sin according to our standard. The, the book of Judges is a complete indictment on that living. See, but this can be our tendency as well, just like the people of Israel. It can be our tendency to redefine sin and create a religion or life for ourselves that make us, makes us feel better about our guilt, right? And it can look very Christian, too. Church-going, Christian friends, Bible-reading, prayer, doing good deeds. All the while, we're reducing God and our Christian life down into what's comfortable for us. God becomes someone who exists for us instead of us existing for Him, Right? And then we think that God is mostly concerned with our health and our success or our, our comfort or circumstantial welfare instead of him being a God who came from heaven to earth to the cross so that we would know him, be saved by him, so we'd be reconciled to him, and so we would become like him for his glory. We, we can tend to think God just exists for our own comfort here in this world. And so we start forming and shaping our religion and our life to fit our desires. Instead of going to the Lord with what he says is true about himself and about what he's done for us. When we have feelings of spiritual drowning. We can also do things like try to atone for our own sin. You ever try to do that? I, I, guilty. Try to atone for your own sin. Whenever you, you feel guilt and shame, you, you do things like, well, you know what? Maybe if I, if I really feel bad for the next few days, if I feel really, really bad about what I've done, then I can go on with my life. Or um, I will deny myself certain pleasures that I really enjoy. I'll deny myself those pleasures, so then I, it's, it's like I'm paying for my sins. I do that, but it makes me feel better about my guilt. Or uh, I'll, make up, I'll make it up by being extra, extra committed in my daily devotions to the Lord. And so we're not trusting the Lord with our guilt. We're, we're dealing with it. We're trying to self-atone. Sometimes we do that, don't we, church? Instead of taking our guilt, and when, when we're, we feel this desperation because of our sin, we take it to ourselves instead of the Lord. But the psalmist here, he's doing the right thing. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. That should be the direction of our hope. To him, not to us or to other things, other experiences. But to him, he's got the direction right. And you think, wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me he's the one that I've sinned against with my sin. 
He's the one I've primarily offended. He's holy, he's righteous, he's, he's altogether good. And you want me to go to the one that I've sinned against, the one who's primarily offended with my, with my sin? You want me to go to him? Maybe that doesn't make sense to you. You might think, well, I don't want to aggravate the situation any more than I've already aggravated it, right? And so you don't want to, you don't want to take it to God. It's like, you remember when you were kids and you had a sibling, let's say your sibling broke a vase in the house, right? A really expensive vase that your, your mother loved and, and while your, your mom's in the kitchen, like cleaning up the vase, cleaning up the shards of glass, you're kind of in the living room with your brother or sister and saying, hey, you know, if I were you, I'd go hang out in the backyard for a while, all right? You don't want to be close to mom while she's, she's dealing with this. You know, you, you might ag- aggravate the situation. Just if she sees you, you know, it, it's, it'll be bad for you. Is it like that? Is that? We don't want to take our guilt to God because we feel like we're going to aggravate the situation? No, no. We should take our guilt to God for the reasons we find here in verses 3 and 4. Okay, which, which brings us to our next point, the content of our hope. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Why do we go to the one we've offended? Why do we go to the one that we've sinned against whenever we are guilty? Because he's the one with whom there's forgiveness. He's the one that forgives. We'll talk about that more in just a second, but but let's talk about what it means first to mark iniquities. That's what it says in verse 3. Mark iniquities. If you, Lord, mark iniquities. Mark in what sense? It means for God to record our sins as in a record book in view of holding us accountable for them. To record our sins with a view to holding us accountable to them. If God did this, is there anyone who could stand before him blameless or guiltless or righteous? No. Paul says in in Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. If God held us all accountable for our sin against him, we would all experience his judgment, church. But don't you love the fact that verse 3 starts out with an if? Don't you love that? It starts out with an if. And don't you love the fact that in verse 4 there's a contrast? But with you, there's forgiveness. If God marked our iniquities, no one could stand before him. But the psalmist says, with you, God, there is forgiveness. This is the reason why you should go to the very one you've offended with your sin. The very God who is holy and just and angry at your sin is the same God who made a way for your sins to be forgiven. Isn't that great? That, that, that still astounds me. I mean, do, we, do we realize that every time we sin, we are rebelling, I mean, outright rebellion, and in hostility, really, Paul says in, in, in Colossians. Hostile in mind is what he, what he says there. Ho- we are, in a hostile manner, rebelling from God when we sin. Every time we sin. Every, every sin we know about, every sin we don't know about. Hostile rebellion from him. And yet he's the one 
who made the way for us to be brought to him, made the way for us to be forgiven. That should floor us. If it doesn't, pray that it would. It should humble you. See, we may, we may think that God, with God there's forgiveness because God just tolerates sin. But don't, don't believe that lie. God is not forgiving God because he tolerates sin. No, no, no. God is not some milquetoast pushover who lets people just walk all over him. Right? Doing what they want and, and just expecting that he'll be okay with it. Or, or at the very least, he'll just get over it in time. That's not God. No, he's a God of forgiveness, but he's also a God of justice. Therefore, sin must be paid for. It must receive its due penalty from him. So in order for God to graciously forgive and be just, a perfect payment for sin had to be made. And the only payment that was sufficient was the very life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The second member of the Trinity. Turn with me to Romans 3. Romans 3, 23 through 26. It's been called one... Some people call this the most important paragraph in the whole Bible. Romans 3, 23 through 26. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, right? Bearing the wrath of God, that is, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did Christ come? So that God could be just, right? Keep, keep that attribute of his doing what it should be doing so he could be just and the justifier of the sinners who would believe in Jesus. Both, both. He can be just and the justifier, right? He can forgive and he can be just at the same time, okay? Because Jesus came and took the penalty, right? Took the punishment we deserve for our sin. It's, it's an amazing reality that the very God we have sinned against is the God who made the plan to send his son to die in the place of hostile rebels so we could be forgiven and set free. And his righteousness could be maintained, right? That's what he's saying here. He says, uh, God had passed over uh, sins that were previously committed, like in the Old Testament, all the sins that had been committed, he passed over those graciously. And so, someone might be tempted to think, well, how can God be righteous if he passed over sin? Well, in God's perfect plan, he knew Christ was coming. And he would pour out all wrath upon Christ. Therefore, he would be able to forgive Every sinner who trusts in Christ while still being just because he, he made the payment. 
for sin by sending his son. See how that works? It's wonderful. So yes, should you go to God with your guilt? Christian, whenever you feel like you're drowning in guilt and shame, yes, he's done everything, everything necessary so that you receive forgiveness, so that you receive help, so that you have hope. And that hope is in Jesus. There's a popular notion these days that we should forgive ourselves. Right? If we're, we're feeling bad about our sin, we're, we're distressed about our sin, we, we feel the guilt and the shame that we should forgive ourselves. Like that's what we need to do. We need to forgive ourselves. But there's a problem with that because we haven't sinned against us. We've sinned against God. So if we've sinned against God, then it's his forgiveness that we need, right? I don't need my forgiveness. I need God's forgiveness because he's the one I've sinned against. And the way that he is granted, we be given forgiveness is through the blood of his son. He, Isaiah 53 says he crushed his son. He crushed his son for us. That's how he's able to forgive. And so I need to go to God to receive forgiveness, not to go to myself. I don't need my forgiveness. I need his he has graciously given it in Jesus. This whole idea of needing to forgive ourselves uh, is interesting. And, and Josh Moody comments, it, comments on it by saying this. When someone says, I, I cannot forgive myself, they may mean that they still feel bad. But if they mean what they say, then they mean that their self is their God. God is the only one who can pardon sin. You need his forgiveness. And if you're, if you're in Christ, what, what, what is stopping you from going to him? It's not like he's, you're going to go to him repentantly, confessing your sins, and find him like this. You know? Or, or hovering over you, just waiting to kind of bring the hammer down like, like, like the whack-a-mole. No. You, you come to him repentantly, humbly, confessing your sins, going to him for the grace you need, for forgiveness and for, for help to live the way that he has called you to live. He, he will receive you graciously. The door is open. His arms are open. He wants to fellowship. He wants to commune with you. You have him as your father. Perfect, loving father. Go to him. You don't need your forgiveness. You need his. And it's there for you if you've trusted in Christ. And for, if you haven't trusted in Christ, you can. You can and find his forgiveness and find his gracious favor that only comes to those who've trusted in Jesus as the one who took their place. So what does it look like? What does it what does it look like, practically speaking, for someone who is experiencing distress because of their sin? What does it look like for them to take their guilt to God? Just let, let's give an example, a practical example, so you can know, so you can apply this to your daily lives whenever you are feeling this way about your sin, okay? Uh, uh, I read a blog this week. So 
There's a, by a woman who experienced the weight of guilt over a particular sin related to her children. Okay? So let me read you a little bit of this post, and we'll kind of comment along the way. Here's what she writes. Mom, 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 I looked up at my son. I'm sorry, what, I asked? Did you hear anything, I said? No, I admitted. Mom, I think you're addicted to your phone, he remarked. This is what she says. Justifications and excuses linger on the tip of my tongue. I wanted to tell him about the important email I had to send, but the truth is he was right. You see that? Guilt had set in, and so she sets to depending on herself to deal with the guilt, right? She wants to, she wants to make justifications. She wants to make excuses, right? Here's what she says. She goes on. She says, when I really think about it, what she means is it being wasting time with technology and neglecting her children for technology. When I really think about it, my heart is convicted. I don't want my kids to think that I care more about responding to a message than I do about them. When I consider how much time I've wasted, time I will never get back, I'm doubly convicted. Guilt settles in. I try harder and set rules for my use of technology. I resolve to not be consumed by it. See what she's doing? Again, she's depending upon herself. She's dealing, uh, she is depending on herself to deal with her guilt, right? Because she says, I try harder. I set rules. I resolve not to be consumed by technology. Listen, church, don't hear me say that whenever we are trying to live for God, we don't set up boundaries and rules. We should. It is good. Please set up rules and boundaries. But don't go to rules and boundaries first. Right? Don't go to rules and boundaries first. Go to God. If you have guilt, go to Him for forgiveness. Go to Him for the grace that you need to walk in His ways. Don't depend on yourself. Here's what she says. Now, this is the encouraging part. Scripture touches all areas of life, including this battle with how we use technology. In his letter to the Romans, Paul speaks about his own battle with sin. He expressed a frustration to, to which we can all relate. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Romans 7, 15. We are all sinners. There is no one righteous, no, not one. As long as we live in this world, we will battle against our sinful nature. But Paul points us to the source of our help. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 7, 24 and 25. Many of us may realize the pull that technology has on us and feel the weight of our guilt because of the wasted time. But like Paul says, Jesus is our rescuer. He came to redeem us from each and every sin, including the squandering away of our time on the iPhone. His perfect life has become ours. His sacrificial death paid our debt in full. What this means is that the work of Christ is sufficient and complete to cover all our sin and empower us to fight for the struggle. Is that encouraging? So that, that's what we can be doing when we experience desperation, distress because of our sin, guilt and shame. Don't depend on yourself. Don't turn, turn to yourself to deal with it. Rather, know that you have a rescuer in Christ. Know that you have been forgiven in Christ. Know that you have a gracious father that wants to help you because Jesus died in your place.
your guilt and sorrow over sin that is making you feel like you're drowning spiritually. Well, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be from guilt or shame over a, a ginormous sin that uh, would ostracize you from people or where people would shun you if they heard about it. Right? We, we think that. We think, uh, he's crying out of the depths. That must be, he must have done something really, really, really bad. It doesn't have to be that shunning kind of sin right? that we're thinking about. Like if I, people just knew, I, would, I wouldn't have any friends anymore. It doesn't have to be that. I mean, this, this woman here, it's... She's feeling this guilt over the fact that she was neglecting her children for technology. So that's something we, we can relate to, right? We've committed sins like that very recently. So what do we do? Where do we take our guilt? We take it to God, trusting that he doesn't mark our iniquities. But because of Jesus, with him there is forgiveness. But here's the thing. When you, go to, when you take your guilt to God, don't, don't for a second think that the gospel stops at forgiveness. Don't think it, it, it stops at the pardon of our guilt. No. The gospel is meant to bring us to a proper response. Okay? God's forgiveness exists to lead us to a specific response that will determine how we live our lives. And that brings us to number three. The response of our hope. Response of our hope. Look with me at verse 4 again. But with you there is forgiveness. Why? Why is there forgiveness? That you may be feared. That you may be feared. Doesn't seem like what we would expect the psalmist to write, right? You would expect the psalmist to say, uh, there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You would expect the psalmist to say something like this. With you there is forgiveness so that you may be praised or worshipped or adored. That's what you expect him to write. Not, but feared? There's forgiveness with you so that you may be feared? Really? Now, this can't mean fear of eternal condemnation or eternal judgment because he's talking about the forgiveness that God has granted Right? God has granted forgiveness, and so we're not talking about eternal condemnation kind of fear, like I dread God in the sense that I, I believe that he is going to squash me, you know, and, and he's going to uh, send me to hell. That, that's not the kind of fear we're talking about here. He's not recording our sins to hold against us in judgment because Jesus died for us, right? However, consider this. The knowledge of God's forgiveness doesn't just produce joy in the Christian. I think we can fall into that trap sometimes. We think, we think about forgiveness, it should only produce joy. Like that's the only godly emotion that forgiveness should produce. Not true. It should produce joy. Please be joyful. Rejoice over forgiveness. But godly fear and joy are not mutually exclusive. Godly fear and joy are not mutually exclusive. And we experience both with a proper view of biblical forgiveness. We experience both. And here's what we think. We think, okay, yes, I understand that I am to have a, a fear of God. I'm to revere God, stand in awe of God. But in order to do that, I think about attributes of God like uh, his wrath or his holiness or his justice. I think about those attributes, and that leads me to an awe. Here, 
according to the psalmist, his forgiveness should lead us to fear. We see, we see things like this. This isn't the only place where we see this represented. I, turn with me to another psalm. Psalm 34, 8 and 9. Flip back um, several psalms to David writing here. Psalm 34, 8 and 9. Listen to this. This is great. The first part of this verse in 8, you'll, you'll recognize. David writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Two verses, two consecutive verses. One says, taste and see he's good. The next one, fear God. You can, at the same time, taste God's goodness and fear him. It can, it can happen simultaneously. But we don't think it is. We, we want to separate the two, okay? I've got the fear of God attributes over here, okay? And I've got the enjoying God attributes over here. If I want to enjoy God, I think about forgiveness. If I want, if I want to think of God and, and fear him, then I think of his holiness and his wrath. No, we can do both. We can do both and should do both. When we taste God's goodness to us, when we savor his forgiveness, a proper response is one of trembling astonishment at such amazing grace. It's an awe that fears disappointing the one who would go to those links, that would make those sacrifices. A, a, a fear that, that, is, that says, I don't want to disappoint the one who has done everything necessary for me to be his. Not because you think he's going to squash you if you slip up, but because his forgiveness has gripped your heart in such a way that you want to bring him honor in all that you do. In the fear of God, we understand what our sin deserves. Okay? Two things here. In the fear of God, you understand what your sin deserves. You understand that it deserves eternal hell. But you also, at the same time, understand that the penalty was not given to you. It was given to Christ. It was poured out on Christ, not you. You understand both of those realities. Think, to, help, to help you understand the, the fear of God that, that we Christians should have, I, I want to I use an illustration. I hope this resonates with you, but, but listen just for just a second. Let's say you're, you're 16 years old. And you wake up in the middle of the night and you decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sneak out. I'm going to sneak out of my house against my father's orders, against my father's commands. I'm going to sneak out. I'm going to go meet my friends. They're, they're doing this thing. They're, they're having a party. I'm going to sneak out, and I'm going to meet them in direct violation to what my dad has said. So you sneak out of the house, but quietly you walk to the car. It's parked in the street. As you're going around to the driver's side door, there's this truck comes barreling around the corner, driving recklessly. And you, you stand there, shocked and stunned, like a deer in the headlights. And right as you're about to get run over, your dad pushes you out of the way. 
and your life is saved. But his, his sacrifice. You were saved by your father, but he died to save you. Think about that for a minute. You were doing something that was rebellious in direct violation to what your dad told you to do. And his, his orders, his commands, his rules were in place for your good. They were in place to bless you, to protect you. They were motivated by an intense love. And you were rebelling against them. And you see what has happened. And you think, that's what I, that's what I should have received. That, that should be me. That, that should be me. But I'm here and I, I don't have a scratch on me. Imagine that emotion. And can you imagine what would come after that? Looking at such amazing love, but knowing, knowing that you deserved it, but got the opposite, and that it was motivated, and it was done in love. Wouldn't you want to submit your father after that? Wouldn't you want to live a life that, that honors him? Wouldn't you want to live a life that would, would, would be a life that he would want you to live after that? Wouldn't, wouldn't you set your, your, your course in light of such sacrificial love to living according to the, the rules, the, the good principles that your, God, that your, your father had taught you? I think so. I think so. I think that's similar to what we're talking about when we talk about the fear of God. Because the fear of God is, is what one author calls the bone-shattering realization that it is by divine mercy alone we are not forever consumed by divine wrath. The bone-shattering realization that it is by divine mercy alone that we are not forever consumed by divine wrath It has that, but it also has with it an element of submission, an element of, I want to honor the one that has shown that love to me. That, that, that love that's, that's really, it fits in a category all by itself because it's that strong. And because it is that potent, it's in a category all by itself. Because of that, I want to live this life. Now, not, be, not because I want to pay God back. I can't pay God back. He has done everything necessary to save me, and it, it, none of it was to my credit. None of it. But I want to live this life now in a way that honors him, that pleases him. I want to live a life that, that he looks upon and smiles. I think that's what we're talking about. We talk about the fear of the Lord. And so when you, when you look at the forgiving love of God, you remember, that's what I deserved. But this is what I got because of Jesus. God, may it lead us to astonishment, awe, fear, bone-shattering realizations about your goodness that lead us to submit to you and live a life pleasing to you.
that leads us to our fourth point, the anticipation of our hope. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. So when we feel like we're drowning spiritually and we feel the burden of guilt and shame because of our sin, we must direct our hope to God. We must hope in the content of the gospel. We must fear God and wait. Wait. What? Yeah, wait. Many, including myself, have been confused by what it means to wait on the Lord. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Because here's what we think about when we think on, on waiting. We think, okay, uh, when you're in the doctor's office, waiting to go into the examination room so you can wait some more, right? Or you're thinking of waiting for a bus or a train or a flight, right? And there's a whole lot of nothing that goes on when you're waiting in that way, right? The whole lot of dilly-dallying, you know, twiddling your thumbs, you know, looking at random stuff on your phone. There's a whole lot of nothing, nothing that goes on when you're waiting that way. But that's not what it's like to wait on the Lord. See, we need to take our guilt to God, and uh, we should find his loving forgiveness there in the gospel and respond in godly fear, but also respond in waiting. Waiting not in a do-nothing kind of way, but in a very active way. And there's lots of doing. There's lots of doing that goes on when we wait for God, okay? Because as you'll see here in a second, I'm just going to whet your appetite. As you'll see here in a second, for us to twiddle our thumbs and just wait for God to do uh, what we're hoping he'll do, that's disobedience. So hold that in your pocket for a second. Let's ask a couple of questions when we're considering what it means to wait on the Lord. Let's ask the question, what exactly do we wait on God for? We're talking about waiting on the Lord. What is it exactly that we're waiting on God to do or waiting on God for? Have you ever considered that? I think verse 5 gives us a hint, church. He says, and in his word, I hope. And in his word, I hope. I think we wait for God in the sense that we wait for him to do what he says he's going to do in the Bible. Okay? That's very important. When we wait on God, we're waiting on God to do what he says he's going to do in the word. He's told us, he's made promises. He reveals to us the things that he is going to do or, or promises to do for us. And so we wait for him to do exactly what he says he's going to do. Many of us have waited and waited and waited on God to do things for us that we ask of him. But those things sometimes have the tendency to be things that God never promised he would give, right? We wait on God to give us something, but we, we never really see where God promises to give that. Or we, we would maybe ask God for something that, that's in line with Scripture, like if you're praying for God to be gracious to you, right? But you have in your mind a specific way you want him to be gracious to you. Sound familiar? Like, this is what grace means to me, God. So you give me this grace. And so we wait, and we wait, and we wait for this, this grace, this picture of what, what we think grace is in our minds. All the while, God is being gracious to us. He's given us grace. But we think grace means this. If, you, if you're a gracious God, you'll give me this, God. And so when this doesn't come, 
We can easily become embittered at God. We can easily become angry at God, impatient with Him. Or sometimes, you know, it may be for us like, like James 4, 3. We ask like James tells us not to when he says, we ask and do not receive because we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions. Right? We're, we're just asking because we, want, we see God as a means to the end of enjoying something else. Right? And so we ask like that, and when we don't receive, we think, well, where's God? Isn't he, I thought he was gracious. I thought that he, he had these promises that he was going to, to deliver on. So there are lots of ways that we wait on God that, that aren't, aren't biblical. Our waiting on God needs to be this. We wait for God to do what he says he's going to do, his way and in his timing. We wait for God to say to, to do what he says he's going to do according to his way and in his timing. Because the timing issue is crucial. Now, we may also think, okay, um, I'm asking God to do what he's promised to do, but he's not, he's not doing it. I, I don't, I'm not being helped in this way. Uh, he said he would do this, but I'm not being helped. Where, where is God? Become impatient. But you wait on his good timing because God, he's operating on perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, according to perfect love for you in Christ, right? Fatherly compassion, and he's got all the power he needs. There's nothing that's, that's keeping him back from blessing you except that he knows according to his love and his perfect wisdom, that waiting is best for you. So knowing that, wait. This is what Charles Spurgeon says. I like this. God's word is a true word, but at times it tarries. If ours is true faith, it will wait the Lord's time. In waiting on the Lord, we must remember that God is God and we are not. God has made many promises to us in Christ, but because he is holy, all-wise, unneeding, supreme in his authority in the universe, he delivers on those promises according to his way and his time. And it's what's best for us. Your life, I like to say around here, your life is tailor-made for you by God so you'll become more like Jesus. So we see here that faith is integral. We're talking about waiting. Believe that he'll deliver on his promises, what he says he's going to do according to his way and his time. Right? So you believe. Faith is integral to waiting. Wait expectantly. Uh, this morning, Jason uh, Cruz, uh, he was telling me about something he found in relationship to waiting on God. He said uh, it has this, this idea of waiting in ambush. Waiting in ambush. There's this Certainty, this expectancy, right? This eagerness and waiting. And we see that in the text, right? My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And he says it twice, more than watchmen for the morning. So we, we have this idea of a military watchman. And he's, he's working his shift. And he's pining for the, the sun to break over the horizon so that he can get the rest that he wants so desperately. So he waits with that eager anticipation right? And let me ask this question. Does a night watchman, does, does he question whether the sun is going to rise? Does he think, man, I sure hope the sun rises at some point. 
I, 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 I'm looking, and I don't know. Maybe it won't. No, he knows it's going to rise. There's that certainty involved, isn't there? In the same way, we know God's going to do what he says he's going to do. We know that, and so we can wait expectantly. But we have to remember that it's according to his ways and to his timing. We can be sure, though. And at the same time, let me say this. We're wrapping up here. While we're waiting, like I said, we're doing. And here's why I think the, where the doing comes in. You're waiting on God to do, do what he says he's going to do. But all the while you're waiting, you're doing what he, you know he already wants you to do. Right? You're waiting on him to do what he says he's going to do. But there's a whole Bible full of commands, principles that you know he wants you to operate on. So while you're waiting on him to deliver on his promises, then you be faithful to obey him according to his word. That's what the doing is. It's not this waiting in the doctor's office kind of thing. It's, no, I am seeking to honor my God by obeying him according to what I already know he wants me to do in the word. So you see how the psalmist is coming out of the depths. He says he waits for the Lord. He came from the depths to, to the gospel, to fearing God, to waiting expectantly. And now we come to verses 7 and 8. Look with me. The final point, which is the pleading of our hope. The pleading, or I'd say exhortation of our hope. He turns from himself to Israel, the people of Israel, and he says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see what he's doing in his hope? He's, he's not being a spiritual hoarder, right? He's not being blessed by God, receiving hope from God, right? Forgiveness from God and saying, all right, I'm just going to sit and I'm gonna bask in this and enjoy this. You know, no, he's, he's enjoying it, and he's hoping in the Lord, but then he turns and he says, you do it too. People, you join, do what I'm doing. You hope in the Lord too. And, and by the way, he doesn't just tell them what to do, he tells them why to do it. It's plentiful redemption with him, right? He will, he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. He tells them why. We should be doing that as well. Don't, you receive hope from the Lord. You, you receive um, help from the Lord when you are in the depths feeling like you're drowning because of your sin, then share it. Don't keep it to yourself. We need each other. Church, we need each other to tell each other hope in God and hear the reasons why you should hope in God. Now, I don't, I, I've been a part of this church now for over 10 years. I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna think about living the Christian life alone without the church, without the body. I don't want to think about that. Because I've been helped so much by you telling me hope in God. Here's why you can hope in God, because he is this way, and he's done these things for you in Christ. You need me to tell you as well. We need each other to build each other up in love so we become more like Christ. And so we can take the message of hope in Christ outside these walls to Fort Worth and beyond. So, do you see? Do you see the journey that's, that 
is taking place. We start out at the depths. And we go to God with our hope. And in God, we find there's forgiveness, not condemnation for those who are in Christ because of what Jesus has done. And then in response to that forgiveness, knowing what we deserve, but what we've been given instead, grace, we respond in godly fear and expectant waiting for God to do what he says he's going to do while we are obeying what we know he wants us to do already. And we then share that hope and urge each other to hope in God. I hope that blesses you this morning. I hope you walk away knowing that if maybe you are experiencing desperation because of your sin now, you feel like you're drowning spiritually, that if you're in Christ, you're not without hope. And if you are without Christ, then you can go to him. You can crawl to Jesus Christ in faith and trust that he is your only hope because he died in the place of sinners who trusted him. You can receive that mercy. You can receive that grace and have all your sins washed away and know that there will always be power for you, always be help for you to respond in a way that is faithful to the Lord, in a way that you will receive the peace and the joy you need in God. You can have hope in Christ today if you don't. You can trust him today. I pray you would. Well, I'm out of time. So let's close in prayer. Father God, you have been good to us in revealing your truth to us this morning. May we, by your grace, respond in faithful obedience and worship. May we not forget this as soon as we walk out the door. May we talk to each other about it. May we respond in a life that obeys because of all you've done for us and because we want to be a people uh, who are good and faithful servants for your honor and your name. We ask this in Christ.